Okay, join me in Haggai, chapter 2. Yeah, the text is printed in your bulletin, or you can find it in your Bibles, the third from the last Old Testament book. Haggai 2, we'll look at, uh, we, for our visitors, we've been doing a series, an Advent series through Haggai, which has four prophecies, and we have arrived at the, the fourth prophecy today, and that's in uh, verses 20 through 23 of Haggai chapter 2. So let's pray, and then we'll go to God's Word. Lord of hosts, uh, forgive our fear, forgive our apathy, and our distraction. You are the God of covenant. We're so short-sighted. If, if you do not bring into view what we expect in our lifetime or even sooner, we begin to question. We begin to doubt you. So, Lord, we do believe, but help our unbelief. You are not slow, as some count slowness, for to you a year is as a thousand and a thousand as a year. We rejoice in your covenant faithfulness. In the fullness of time you sent the Christ who brought us the salvation that the prophets foretold with wonder and into which the angels long to look. So, Lord, let us not neglect so great a salvation. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us until that great and awesome day when our enemies are put to shame and we become like him, for we see him as he is. In his name we ask. Amen. If you would stand for the reading of God's word, Haggai 2, 20 through 23. <clears throat> the word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month. Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I am about to shake the heavens and the earth and to overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I am about to destroy the strength of Nate kingdoms of the nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders. And the horses and their riders shall go down, every one by the sword of his brother. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. Amen. This is God's word. You may be seated. Tomorrow is Christmas Day, and I know you kids, and let's be honest, we adults are wondering what is in those packages under the tree. And I think the anticipation, the waiting, is sometimes more exciting than the receiving. So imagine waiting instead of a few months or a few weeks for years, or even several hundred years or several thousand years. Years for, for waiting for generations. It would be an almost overwhelming to, to the point that I think some would fall into despair and to apathy. And it doesn't really matter. It's not going to happen in my lifetime. Um, but for others, the sense of anticipation is, is the coal that runs the steam engine. One day, a priest named Zechariah got word from an angel that he would have a son, and that son he should name John, and that John would prepare the way for the Messiah, that, that one promised for thousands of years, 
Um, and, and so for Zechariah, he heard this problem promise, and for him, it's really happening. The Messiah is coming in my lifetime. So I want you to hear Zechariah's response, and you can turn to Luke 1 if, you, if you'd like. But hear Zechariah's response, and see if you can pick up on the promises that seem to be ingrained in his soul, and the things that are important to him that are coming to pass in his time. So Luke 1, uh, beginning in verse 68, Blessed be the Lord, God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show mercy to our fathers, to remember his holy covenant. The oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. So finally, after all this time, all these promises about the Messiah, the Christ, the Savior, are converging on Zechariah and his family for the redemption of Israel. And notice the elements of promise that he he recounts in his celebration salvation, the coming of the the one from David, the house of David, the salvation from his enemies and the enemies and those who hate the people of God and mercy to serve God according to his covenant faithfulness. These are the promises that have been waited for for so long. In this text this morning in Haggai, um, Haggai reaches way back on the timeline of redemptive history into really the, the history of anticipation. And he speaks of a time to come, a time of receiving, the time of the arrival of the Christ, and even, as we'll see, a time that we get to enjoy still anticipating, the arrival of the Christ in his second advent. So this witness here in Haggai, this witness to God's covenant and faithfulness reminds us of the hope that we celebrate during Christmas time. That even as it did for these post-exilic temple builders that were struggling to build the temple in those days, that, that hope, hope is the coal that drives the steam engine. And we'll see this hope consists of two things. Um, first is that it consists of the tearing down of our enemies, the destruction of our enemies. And second, the raising up, the raising up of the people of God. So tearing down and raising up. We'll look at this passage under those two headings, tearing down and raising up. So first, tearing down. God tears down and destroys the enemies of his people. That, that might not be the first thing we think of when we think about salvation at Christmas time is the destruction of our enemies. But this is a significant part of the hope for the people of, of God throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament. It's a consistent theme in the prophets that the enemies of God would be destroyed. The uh, shorter catechism, question 26, asks, how does Christ execute the office of a king? So what's the kingly role? Christ executeth the office of a king in subduing us to himself. So first he conquers us in our hearts. In ruling and defending us, he takes care of us, and in restraining and conquering all his and our enemies. That's what he. Does. That's what a good king 
does. And that's what they're looking forward to, the, the removal of the enemies. And that's, what, that's what's emphasized here in this first portion of, of Haggai's final prophecy. So verse 20, the word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the ninth month. So this is December 18th, 520 B.C. This is the second prophecy. The third and fourth prophecy in Haggai come on the same day, the day that they began to lay stone upon stone, rebuilding the temple. And there's really a balance here that I think becomes significant, that having addressed last the one we looked at last week to the priest, which includes Joshua, the priest, he now turns and addresses Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the governor of Judah, the, the only real hope for a king of Judah. So there's this balance between priest and king, which as we'll see in a little while, uh, hints at a need for a priest king to come. And this hint is, is made explicit in elsewhere in scripture. So we'll see that. Um, verse 21, speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I am about to shake the heavens and the earth. So this harkens back, this echoes what, what Haggai has already said back in chapter 2, verses 6 through 9. Um, so if you have your Bibles, you can read along here with me. Uh, For thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. And I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. So as we saw there, the shaking, the shaking of the heavens and the earth represent really a, a great cosmic universal change. There will be a, a new covenant. There will be a renewal of the people of God and a bringing in of the Gentiles and, and really a renewal of the covenant relationship. And the concept here in this passage is the same, but the focal point is different because there the emphasis was on the temple, the bringing in and the glorification of the temple. And now the focus has changed from the temple to the kingdom. Now, there's a couple of commentators help me see something I didn't see before in this passage that these phrases that God uses next are, I think, intentionally chosen to evoke the historic salvation of the people of God in Judah's history. So there, he, he's in promising them what's to come, he's also reminding them of what came before. So um, Alec Mutier, he says that the final verses of, this, uh, of his book uh, reveal Haggai as the literary equivalent of an impressionist painter. He gives the general tone and effect without elaborate detail. As in a carefully composed picture where every stroke is designed to lead the eye to what is central, so here too the focus is like a shaft of sunlight illuminating one item, a ring shining on a finger. So these, these images that are meant to evoke things um, and, and evoke memories in the people. So verse 22, uh, the first of these images that God promises that he will overthrow the throne of kingdoms. And the uh, verb over, overthrow or, or um, hapak in Hebrew is often used to describe 
Yahweh's judgment of uh, Sodom and Gomorrah in the Old Testament. Frequently, you see it over and over again. Just a couple examples. Um, Genesis 19.29 So it was that when uh, God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst um, of the of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot lived. And then again in the prophets remembering this time, um, Amos 4.11, I overthrew some of you as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. And you see there's many other examples in the Old Testament. So I think they would have recognized the language here and thought back to the time when, when God overthrew uh, debauchery and evil in, in the covenant land where Abraham was a promised land and even rescuing uh, Lot from their midst. The second image here, kind of overflowing, flows into uh, an, another historic salvation event in their history and, and really the defining salvation event in Israel's history. He says, I am about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders. So this evokes immediately the great overthrow of the military might of Egypt. As God swept away the riders and their chariots in the Red Sea. So here the language uh, directly from Exodus, uh, Exodus 14, 26. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea that the water may come back on the Egyptians, upon their chariots and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen of all the host of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea. Not one of them remained. And of course, um, if you read the psalm that the people sing afterwards in chapter 15 of Exodus, uh, over and over again it talks about the destruction of the horses and their riders and the chariots. Uh, just a, a little bit of a taste. Um, then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. And Miriam uh, sang to them, Sing to the Lord. For he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. You see how the language that God is using through Haggai is evoking these salvation images uh, uh, to, to remind them of who God is and what he does for the people. That he's the same God ruling and defending the same people and bringing to pass the same set of promises. Now the imagery continues to unfold in a third image kind of shifting our gaze to another salvation event. And the horses and their riders shall go down, every one, by the sword of his brother. So a number of times in the Old Testament, God turns the enemies of the people inward against each other. The most dramatic event that would flash into the mind of the remnant would be God's defeat of the Midianites through Gideon. Uh, remember that God had called nervous Gideon to, to oust or to remove the, uh, the Midians who were encamped against them. And rather than assembling this great army, God pairs down an army of 32,000 to 300. And then in Judges 7, uh, 19 through 23, So Gideon and the hundred men who were with him came to the outskirts of the camp 
at the beginning of the middle watch when they had just set the watch. And they blew the trumpets and smashed the jars that were in their hands. Then the three companies blew their trumpets and broke the jars. They held in their left hands the torches and their right hands the trumpets to blow. And they cried out, A sword for the Lord and for Gideon. And every man stood in his place around the camp, and the army ran. They cried out and fled. When they blew the three hundred trumpets, the Lord set every man's sword against his comrade. The camp of Midian is attacking itself. Of course, there are other similar stories um, in the Old Testament. In Isaiah 19, there's a similar prophecy where God says, And I will stir up Egyptians against Egyptians, and they will fight each against another, and each against his neighbor, city against city, kingdom against kingdom. So God does not need his people to be a great military force. By the power of his own might, in a moment's notice, he can turn the enemy in upon itself and defeat it in an embarrassing instant. So these images that, that God is evoking in this promise point to a most basic truth, one that has been emphasized throughout Haggai and throughout really Israel's history, and a truth, truth that is just integral to the prophecies of Haggai. I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts, Yahweh of armies. I am with you. I think this is the power of looking back. Hope hope looks forward, but it's grounded on the sure promises of God and activity of God in the past. His historic covenant faithfulness is why we are sure that his promises will come to pass in the future. So when things feel hopeless, when, when temple building, the role we've been called to play in the building up of the Lord's spiritual house becomes daunting to us, we have this powerful opportunity to, to look back and to remember God's covenant faithfulness. To Abraham, to Moses, to Gideon, to David. And really we have a special vantage in our time in history as we can look back on something that this, these saints didn't have. We look back on the birth of Christ. In the flesh, in his life, in his death and resurrection and ascension. And that grounds our hope. So. God tears down his and our enemies. That's a fundamental part of the Christmas hope. At the same time, he builds up his people. So we'll turn now to that second heading, but I want to also continue to consider the defeat of our enemies because their defeat and our lifting up are really a simultaneous act for God. They go hand in hand. So, this, this idea of the defeat of the enemies of God is further supported in verse 23, which um, begins and really it serves as a temporal marker for when will these things happen? When will the enemies be torn down? When will the people of God be built up? And he says, on that day, verse 23, on that day, I will make these things happen. The, the phrase on that day is kind of an abbreviated form of what kind of becomes a, a more of a technical term in the prophets. Um, and it, 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 that is the day of the Lord. This is referring to the day of the Lord on that day. The Ligonier article that, that summarized the meaning of the day of the Lord as 
um, the day in which God completes salvation, sets Israel over the nations, and defeats all of his enemies. That's the day of the Lord. So if you if you read through any prophetic book, it almost becomes monotonous how much <laughs> destruction is going to be wrought on the nations of the world. But there's always these two themes, the tearing down of the enemies of God and the raising up of his people. Um, Zechariah, so, uh, Zechariah is Haggai's sort of companion prophet during this time. He uses this same phrase, on that day, um, 19 times in his book. And there as well, the idea is the tearing down of wickedness and the raising up of the people of God. So Zechariah 9 16, he says, On that day, the Lord their God will save them as the flock of his people, for like the jewels of a crown, they shall shine on his hand. Zechariah 12, 6, On that day, I will make the clans of Judah like a blazing pot in the midst of wood, like a flaming torch among sheaves, and they shall devour to the right and to the left all the surrounding peoples, while Jerusalem shall again be inhabited in its place in Jerusalem. So think for a moment how the tearing down promise and the promise of building up, how it offers hope to these people. Think about this Zerubbabel character. He's in the line of David. He's the grandson of the king of Judah who was hauled off during the Babylonian exile. And now he's sort of a provincial governor under the thumb of the Persian Empire. Every time they try to rebuild the wall or rebuild the temple, the other local provinces rise up against them. And so to say the least, this, this is not the Zion envisioned by, by the pre-exilic prophets. This is not right. The, the Davidic royal promise seems to be, at this point, far-fetched at best. And yet, Yahweh of armies promised to tear down the enemies and to raise up is a word of, of hope for them, a, a light in a dark time. What is, is not what will be. Uh, Calvin helps draw this into a new covenant application. He says, we now perceive the prophet's designs and we also perceive the application of this doctrine. For whenever impediments and difficulties come in our way, calculated to drive us to despair, when we think of the restoration of the church, this prophecy ought to come to our minds, which shows that it is in God's power and that it is his purpose to overturn all the kingdoms of the earth, to break chariots in pieces, to cast down and lay prostrate all riders, rather than to allow them to prevent the restoration of his church. We, we also have this hope, the hope of the day of the Lord, of the tearing down and raising up set before us. Um, whatever a, the apparent shape of the church or, or of the world at the given moment, that God is exercising patience that the elect from every nation would be brought into his house and, and we await the consummation of on that day. Paul tells us about this in Second Thessalonians 1. 4 through 10, he says, Therefore we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and the afflictions that you are enduring. 
This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. When he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. So on that day, on that day, the tearing down and the building up will be final and it will be glorious. And the enemies of God and his people will be torn down and we will be raised up. However, that day has already begun in Christ. As we see here, the building up of God's people takes the form of a very special promise issued to Zerubbabel. In verse 23, On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and make you a signet, like a signet ring. For I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. So three times in verse 23, God says, or the Lord, Lord says, I declare to you. And twice he adds, says the Lord of hosts. Says Yahweh of armies. This, this God who overturned Sodom and Gomorrah, who destroyed the horses and chariots of Egypt, who turned man upon man in the Midianite camp. God of hosts will be with Zerubbabel and make him a signet ring on that day. This promise to Zerubbabel is grounded in absolute certainty, the certainty of divine election. He says, I will take you and make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. That means it's as good as done in God's mind. A signet ring... Uh, really, it's in, in the original, it's just, I'll make you a signet. It could be any piece of jewelry, a bracelet, a necklace, a, a ring. Um, the, the, it was an item that bore the, the name of the king. It's an article that could imprint his name as a representation of his authority or, or as a claim as to what is his. So for Sunday School, Kelly has some, some implements that imprint initials in wax that we let the kids uh, play with. Those that, that's a signet. That's a sign. This is mine. This is representing me and my name. Um, much here again, he says, nearest in wording to Haggai is Song of Solomon 8.6, where the beloved, the, the, the uh, Solomon's beloved, desires her name to be engraved on her lover's heart and arm, making her central to his affections and the first call on his strength. So that, that verse says, set me as a seal, or it's the same word, a signet upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm. Uh, Matthias goes on, in Haggai, as in the Song of Solomon, it is the wearing, not the using of the signet that is mentioned. It symbolizes the possession and enjoyment of a close and precious, precious relationship. The king will be, be the identity by which the Lord will be known. 
The king will be the identity by which the Lord will be known. Um, as we went through the Psalms recently in Sunday school, we saw that David, or the king of Israel, stood as the ideal, the representative of God, um, which really is an echo of Eden, where Adam is meant to be the image, the signet, the representation, the king over the land, to exercise dominion in the garden, to rule it and keep it as the signet or the image of God. And so at this point in history, the great tree of the Davidic uh, promise, the Davidic monarchy seems so lifeless. But we see here that, that it is really in the sort of deciduous dormancy of winter. There's still life in the roots. And the branch of Jesse will leaf and blossom and will bear fruit. It's interesting. Uh, God had spoken about Zerubbabel's grandfather uh, in Jeremiah 22, 24. He says, As I live, declares the Lord, though Jeconiah, that's his grandfather, the king at the time, Though Jeconiah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, were the signet ring on my hand, yet I would tear it off. That's, that's, that, that's the exile that they go into because of their disobedience. And so the question is, will God restore his promise to the Davidic line? But the promise here to Zerubbabel is a reversal of this curse, a word of, of restoration to the repentant grandson and one who's laboring to build the temple of the Lord. And so the Davidic promise lives. I think even Zerubbabel would have understood this, that this promise was less about him and more about the future of the Davidic line and throne. Because God says, on that day, it is the day to come. Historically, of course, we know that the kingdom never really was restored to Judah, and it would be another 500 years of, of turmoil before the arrival of the Prince of Peace. So, so how are these promises fulfilled to Zerubbabel? So if, you, if you read Matthew or if, chapter 1, or if you read Luke chapter 3, not skipping over the list of names, you'll read through and you'll find a name there, the name of... Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel was Jesus' great, 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 however many, grandfather. So in the providence of God, and in the fullness of time, born in, a, in backwater Bethlehem, a, a baby, the son of Zerubbabel, son of David, son of, son of Abraham, son of God, was born. And this child is the king. He is the signet of Yahweh. Hebrews 1.3 says that he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. It's the idea of this, the imprint of the signet. Colossians 1.15, he is the image of the invisible God. And Jesus is the king uh, through whom Zechariah, uh, Zechariah was the father of John the Baptist, not the prophet. Zechariah believed God was reigning up, raising up a horn of salvation for his people to defeat uh, his and their enemies. So we, we see this in Colossians 2.15, that he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. In 1 Corinthians 15, uh, 24, 20 through 26, 
Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. So King Jesus has come. He's defeating all of his and our enemies. And not only is he the king, but there's this beautiful symmetry in Haggai that Joshua, the priest, and Zerubbabel, the governor, are addressed equally. But it's also a bit odd, a bit asymmetrical, that the whole book is about the rebuilding of the temple and this last little bit, this last prophecy, is about the kingdom. It seems to suggest that the kingship and priesthood should go together. They should be united. And this is a suggestion that's made explicit through Zechariah the prophet, Haggai's companion prophet in Zechariah 6. Uh, Zechariah 6, 11 through 14. Take from them silver and gold and make a crown and set it on the head of Joshua. That's the high priest, uh, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. And say to him, thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold the man whose name is the branch, for he shall branch out from this place and shall build the temple of the Lord. It is he who shall build the temple of the Lord and shall bear royal honor and shall sit and rule on his throne. There shall be a priest on his throne and the council of peace shall be between them both and the crown shall be in the temple of the Lord. Here we have a promise that the priest will also be the king, which if you remember your Old Testament, that, that's something that was forbidden. It's king Saul was, was got into a great deal of trouble for taking on the priestly role to himself. But there would come one who would be a priest and a king. This prince of peace is one who comes bearing peace with man, peace in life, protecting us and defending us from our enemies and raising up his kingdom and throwing down his enemies. But he's also the priest who makes peace between us and God. So in Hebrews 6, 19 uh, through 7, 2, we read this about Jesus. And we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, he is first by translation king of righteousness, and then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. So after years of longing, of anticipation, of waiting, generations, the anticipation of all God's promises became yes, and amen in one little person. God made flesh on, on that day. On the day that the son of Zerubbabel was born, a priest king after the order of Melchizedek, priest, a, a prince of peace and king of kings. And yet, thankfully for us, the joy of anticipation is not over. That, that day, the day of the Lord began on that day. But that day is still unfolding. And so we wait with eager expectation for the day when all of his and our enemies are finally destroyed and we might be raised up to, to serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him for all of our days. Amen.